The New Testament passage is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning. And if, if this is your first time here at One Ancient Hope, we're very glad to have you with us. We do have some, some drinks, some coffee, some snacks outside. I'd encourage you to hang out around after the service. We'd love to, to meet you and to spend some time with you. And right now, we're going through the, the book of Matthew. And when we first started the book of Matthew, we, we looked at Matthew 13 and in that, Christ talks about the trained or discipled scribe, the one who is able to bring out both treasures old and new, the one who can understand the old treasures in light of the new and the new treasures in light of the old, who can understand the Old Testament in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new treasure that is, and the one who can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ in terms of the Old Testament the old treasure. So in a sense, going through the book of Matthew is a crash course in learning how to rightly read the Bible, to find out how all of Scripture truly does find its culmination in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's with that confidence, uh, with that fact, that we turn to our passage today. So let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for bringing us together by your word. We thank you for your word that declares to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions for this passage, and Lord, that it would work the gospel deeper into our very souls. And we ask this, and we thank you for these things. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, today we, we come to the account of Christ's temptation, and, and we actually find the temptation in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of those Gospels. And if you look at those events, what comes before the temptation in each of those Gospels is the same thing. Christ rises from the waters of baptism into which John has plunged him, and he hears the words of the Father, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And after Christ hears those words, we read, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And it's interesting because in the Gospel of Mark, we're told immediately after Jesus hears these words, he's pushed into the wilderness by the devil. And so this sequence, this order that we find of hearing the Father's words and being led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted, that sequence, that order is very important. It's telling us that we need to hear the words of the Father, to think about these words of the Father in order to understand the temptation that Christ is undergoing in the wilderness. These words, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Because it's these very words that are under attack. It's these very words that will be tested in the wilderness. And if you notice the first two temptations of Satan, well, they start with, if you are the Son of God of God. What then is Satan trying to call into question? What is Satan trying to get Christ to disbelieve? That Christ is the beloved Son of God with whom God is well pleased. Somehow Satan thinks if I can make Christ question the love of the Father, if I can make him question his status of the beloved Son, well then somehow, some way, I can compromise and I can undo the mission for which God sent him. And Satan knows what he's doing because Satan has done this before. And Luke's gospel gives us a very important clue to a key Old Testament background event. Because in in Luke, what you'll find is in between Christ's baptism and his temptation in the wilderness, what you find is a genealogy. And the genealogy begins with Jesus and Joseph, and it stretches all the way back to Adam, and it closes with Adam, the son of God. Adam is here in Luke identified as the son of God, but what we find is where Christ succeeds, Adam fails. Again, Satan has used this same strategy before in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve enjoy an untarnished relationship with God. They enjoy the abundance of creation, free from corruption and death. Yet in all of this, they turn away. Satan is able to make them suspicious, to make them question whether God really does love us, whether God really is good, whether his plans are good, whether his purposes are good. And so Satan convinces them that God is miserly, selfish, manipulative, stingy, self-serving, withholding, untrustworthy. They come to disbelieve that they're children of God. And what we find in the most basic posture behind temptation, the temptation that leads to sin, is distrusting God in his good and gracious purposes. It was true then, it was true at the time of Jesus's temptation, and it remains true today. Because it's from the rejection of God's fatherly love that sin and its effects ooze out into the world. You can imagine Satan saying, if you are the son of God, Adam, then eat here from this tree. If God really loved you like a father, He certainly wouldn't withhold such a beautiful fruit from you. And you know what? If he has forbidden it, then maybe God isn't the loving father that he actually lets on to be. Now that I think about it, Adam, maybe you're not the son of God. 
Maybe you're more of a plaything. Maybe you're a bit of amusement for a bored deity. Maybe you're a bit of amusement for a god who's actually quite arbitrary, capricious. You know what, Adam? You might not be his son, but you know what? At least you could treat yourself to a good meal. You might not be the beloved son of God, but you know what? Enjoy this moment of pleasure and eat this fruit. And Adam gives in to this temptation. He takes it hook, line, and sinker. Adam falls, and ever since the fall, this distrust of God has been the default setting of the fallen human heart. We think God is not a loving father, and now, after the fall, Satan has more to work with than he ever had before. Because the astounding thing about the fall in Eden is Adam fell in Eden. It was, a, it was a world free from human sin, free from creational corruption. But now we find ourselves in a very different situation. We're living under the curse. All of creation, all of the world is subjected to futility. And nothing works exactly like it should. Now that lie is more tempting than it has ever been before. And this brings us to another Old Testament background event. And that's Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering when they are exiled from Egypt. This is four prolonged decades of temptation in a fallen world. It's 40 years of facing daily realities of hunger and thirst and sickness and exhaustion and death and thinking to yourself, can God truly be a loving God? Again, this is the basic question behind all temptation. And just like the fall of Adam, the failure of the Israelites in the wilderness goes to frame Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness. Because what is the first thing that we find Satan saying to Jesus? After 40 days of fasting, Jesus is hungry, and Satan comes to Jesus in his physical hunger, and he tells him, if you are, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus responds, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus' first quotation and, and the other quotations that he'll do as well, they're all taken from, from Deuteronomy. And these were words originally spoken by another figure who fasted for 40 days on behalf of God's people, namely Moses. And Jesus specifically here is quoting from Deuteronomy 8, as Moses tells the people the following as they prepare to enter into the promised land. Moses tells them, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And there's a number of points to draw together there. The first is that Jesus' hunger, well, it corresponds to the hunger of the Israelites in the wilderness. And it's important to note that the specific quotation we find here, it's in respect to manna, to God feeding his people with manna, God feeding his people with the bread that comes down from heaven. But how was it that God's people first responded to their hunger in the wilderness? What do they say? 
Well, in Exodus 16, we find them saying the following, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And if you remember in in chapter 2 of Matthew, Matthew quotes Hosea 11, out of Egypt I've called my son. And and here again in chapter 4, Israel's role as the son of God is in focus. But how is it that this son of God, for 40 years in the wilderness, right after their deliverance from Egypt, after their deliverance from grueling slavery, after their deliverance from having all of their male babies killed, how do they respond? With false and idealized images of Egypt. They experience hunger and immediately they are distrustful of God. They're angry at God. They say in their hearts, God, if we were truly your children, you would not treat us like this. Instead of caring for us, you've simply brought us out into the wilderness to die. In fact, we would be better off if you would have just killed us back in Egypt. We'd rather you kill us than care for us if this is the way that you treat your children. And so there's an expectation here. They think if they are children of God, then everything would work out exactly like they want, exactly like they expect. Life would be easier. Life would be more comfortable. And this has always been a temptation for the Christian life. Uh, Christian Smith and and Melinda Lindquist are well known for their book, Soul Searching, and, and their coining of a term that has come to be, in many ways, the default religion for American culture, what they call moralistic therapeutic deism. And and they write the following about this quite common faith. They say, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. But what does God do here in Exodus? He does not come to them like a divine butler. He brings them into the wilderness to test them. He subjects them to hunger. And he withholds the very thing that they want most. Give me food, God. And we can relate Give me a spouse, God. Give me children. Give me good health. Give me a strong bank account. Give me good grades. Give me acceptance into the right school. Give me the right social network. Give me this and that. And the things of creation, they're not bad things to ask for. God desires that we bring our desires before him. And if God gives us something, in creation? Well, let us receive it gladly and gratefully and let us steward it well. But God doesn't promise any of these things. And while we do well to love and desire these things, we are not to love and desire them most of all. And this is the problem of the wilderness. The Israelites' response shows that what they desire most is the fulfillment of their physical hunger. They desire this more than they desire God. And what about us? 
What is it that would bring us to say, if I can't have this God, it's better that you kill me? Can you imagine going on if you lost your job? Could you imagine going on if you lost your spouse? Could you imagine going on if, if, if you desired to get married, but you never find a spouse? Can you imagine going on if your children fall short of the idealized life that you have for them? Can you imagine going on if you receive a health diagnosis that drastically changes your life? And these can be heavy thoughts, but there's a good chance that at least one of these things will happen to each of us here in this sanctuary. And will we respond in some way, shape, or form by wishing for our death? Will we denounce God's fatherly love as a lie? Will we respond by saying, now that I don't have this, life just isn't worth living anymore? And C.S. Lewis is, is helpful here. In his book, The Problem of, of Pain, he prepares us how to process suffering and tragedies the right way. He tells us, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And in their hunger, God is shouting to the Israelites, you must not live by bread alone, by career alone, by marriage alone, by parenting alone, by physical health alone, by whatever alone that is not God. You are my beloved child. But we can't believe this. We, we can't believe this when we're hungry. We can't believe this when things aren't working out just like we expect but we have to remember that God is not a divine butler. Our God is God. And to be loved by God, it sounds wonderful, and it is. But think about it. To truly be loved by God, the God of the universe, well, that is a very unsettling thought. To, to, to again quote Lewis from Problem of Pain, he writes, when Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested because really indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, you have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. You have the consuming fire himself. If it is God that loves us, then it is a love that will challenge us and correct us. It is a love that will lead us in ways that cut against our comforts and expectations. It will be a love that alone knows what's best for us, even when we wish exactly the opposite. It is a love that is so much more powerful, so much more wise, yes, so much more loving than the lesser love that we desire. What we want is less love than this. God 
Love us just enough to give us bread, but, but not so much that you might make us give up bread for something better. God, love us just enough to, to leave us to ourselves, but, but not so much that things get difficult and messy. Love us just enough to make us feel good about what we're already doing, but, but not so much that we might have to actually change our lives. God, love us just enough so we can keep our current ideas about finances and vocation and professional practices and sexuality and ambitions and schedules and relations. Let us keep them in place. Don't love us so much that we might actually have to transform them. God, love us just enough to affirm us, not so much that we find our lives upended. But as Moses goes on to say to the people in Deuteronomy 8, after the section that we quoted, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. This divine discipline, this love that is actually the burning and consuming fire of God's love, this love just is the perfect picture of a loving father toward a beloved child. But we don't want to be loved like children. We want to be loved as, as colleagues, as, as equals, as friendly acquaintances. Because to be loved like a child is to be loved by someone who knows better than us. To be loved like a child is to be loved by someone who will instruct us in ways we'd rather not be instructed. To be loved like a child is to lose control to give up control, but to be loved like a child is to be loved like a child. It is to be the beloved child of God the Father. Yes, this is scary, even terrifying, but what more could we possibly want? And just as it doesn't take long for any parent to hear, and, and I can speak here from personal experience, their children to say, you don't really love me, or if you loved me, you'd let me do this, or if you love me, you'd give me this. Well, so too are we quick to speak and think these things about God. It's always the fact that the deepest logic of temptation is distrusting that God is our loving Father. And so we suspiciously distrust and disbelieve that he is good and gracious. Satan knows this, but so too does Jesus know this. Again, what's the larger context of Jesus' response to Satan? Well, remember those words from Deuteronomy. Moses says, And God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God fed his people with manna so that they would know that they should not live. They must not live. They cannot live by bread alone. And at first, this might seem counterintuitive. To show that they cannot live, must not live by bread alone, God gives them bread. We might expect, actually, God to take away bread here. But think about this bread. This is manna. 
This is bread from heaven. This is bread given by God himself to his people. And you can't eat manna without thinking about God. You can't eat bread from heaven without remembering our Father who's in heaven. And so manna naturally directs you to God. As you eat it, you will remember that this is a gift from your good and gracious God. You will know that you are a beloved child of God. Or at least that's the way it's supposed to work. And of course, it often didn't work like that for the Israelites. And of course, it doesn't often work like that for us. Because here is the key truth about manna. Everything is manna. Everything is manna. Everything. Everything is a gift from our good and gracious Father. Whatever good thing you have, it is from heaven. As James tells us in chapter 1 of his epistle, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And it's important to note that James casts this in light of being deceived. If you don't count everything you have as manna, you are deceived. You have fallen into temptation. You have accepted the lie of the evil one. You have been deceived. And, and I don't usually quote the, the same person three times in a, a sermon, but it just so happened to be this time. But I'm not, you, you can never apologize for quoting C.S. Lewis. But Lewis is again helpful here. Because he reminds us that all of the world points back to God. And he gives us a poignant analogy, a striking illustration. Lewis says, You will have noticed that most dogs can't understand pointing. You point to a bit of food on the floor. The dog, instead of looking at the floor, sniffs at your finger. A finger is a finger to him, and that is all. This dog can't understand that he's, he's meant to follow the finger to something else. The, the dog doesn't understand that actually the finger is pointing, is directing the dog to something better. The dog just sniffs the finger. The same is true for us. How often do we just sniff at bread, sniff at our careers, sniff at the relationships God has given to us, sniff at our physical health or perhaps the curing that God has worked in our lives. And we sniff and we forget that each of these things is manna. We forget that each is a gift of heaven. We forget that each of these is meant to point us to our loving Heavenly Father. And so we are deceived. Think about the good things in your life. If you think the primary reason you have them is because of how hard you've worked or how well you've done, you are wrong. If you think you have these good gifts because you deserve them more than someone else, you are wrong. We're called to be good stewards. We're called to work hard. Don't hear me saying something else, but think about the opportunities and advantages that you've been born with. Think about the things that have just kind of come together in an uncanny way through no planning of your own. If you think these things are your due, you will never, ever see them as manna. You will be deceived. 
And let that truth humble and fill us with childlike gratitude for absolutely every good thing God has given to us. Let us always steward well what God has given to us. He calls us to good and faithful stewardship. But let us always remember that what we steward is a gift. And Christ was never, ever deceived like this. He followed every good gift back to his perfect, loving Father. And this brings us to temptations two and three, and I promise we'll treat those in shorter form. In the second temptation, Satan takes Christ to the very top of the temple in Jerusalem, and he tells him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Satan here misconstrues Scripture. He, he quotes Psalm 91, but he uses it to wrong effect. Satan implies that God simply will meet all of your expectations about safety, about protection, about love. If you are truly the beloved Son of God, Jesus, even if you throw yourself down from this temple, God will keep you physically safe. Wouldn't we expect as much from any loving parent? But Christ responds, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And it's important to note that the psalm that Satan quotes, Psalm 91, it actually begins like this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The psalm is telling us that God is God most high. God is God almighty. God is God the Lord. God is the God who creates and sustains all things, the entire universe and every particle within it. But where does the psalmist go after that? He tells us immediately after speaking of God's incomparable greatness, he says, God, this God, this great God, is my refuge and my fortress this great God is, is gracious. He loves me and cares for me, and he is the God in whom I trust. Because if we affirm God's unimaginable greatness and also affirm his unimaginable graciousness, it's only natural. It's natural that we should trust him. His wisdom and love always know what's best for us, and his great power assures us that he's always able to carry out his good purposes. Therefore, trust God. Therefore, don't put God to the test, because to put God to the test is to assume that I know better than God what is best for me. Because again, to be loved like a child means to be loved by one who knows what's best for us, even if we think exactly the opposite. We're not loved by a divine butler, but a God of infinite wisdom and power and love. We're not colleagues of God. We're toddlers in need of training and guidance at every step. And you might say, well, that's degrading to be loved like a child. But again, to be loved as a beloved child is to be loved as a beloved child. It's a humbling love, but there is no deeper love. To be loved as a beloved child is at once deeply humbling, but also deeply dignifying. And there's no greater gift of love than God himself. If, if toddlers, if, if they find themselves loving any toy or meal or activity more than their parents, then something has gone wrong. 
And the same is true for us in God. And this brings us to Satan's third temptation, the temptation to fall down before Satan and have Christ worship him in order to receive all the kingdoms of the world. And in a sense, what Satan is promising Christ is all of creation, every good thing that God has made, all the kingdoms of the world, if he will only forsake his worship and love of God. And finally, here is the God that we expect. Finally, here is the divine butler. Here is the one who lets us love and be loved on our own terms. Yes, I'll worship you if you give me this or that. Finally, a God who is willing to treat us as an adult, like a wage worker, not like a child. Finally, a God who is simply willing to give us what we think is best for us. But who is this God? It's Satan. Satan is more than happy to work to give you any good thing in creation instead of God. Because again, the basic logic of sin, which we've talked about many times, is loving and seeking a lesser good at the expense of a greater good, loving and seeking creation more than God himself, but Christ will have none of it. God alone is to be worshipped. God, our loving Father, and this is hard, has not promised us anything in creation. Not until the resurrection, not till the restoration of all creation, but at present we are not promised anything in creation. Again, God might give us such things in his graciousness and let us receive them gladly and gratefully, let us steward them well, but we know God is loving because God has promised to us the greatest gift, the greatest good of all, which is himself. However, that means that much of the Christian life is learning to receive more fully, more gladly, more faithfully the good gift that is God himself. And often this will mean that God will have to wean us off of the very good, but not the greatest gifts and goods that we find in creation. The 17th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor Samuel Rutherford, he wrote the following in a letter to a woman who was facing death because of sickness. And these words are not easy words, but they are necessary words for a fallen world that is longing for the restoration of all things. Rutherford writes to this woman, Madam, your Lord wills you in all states of life to say, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And herein, herein shall you have comfort that he who sees perfectly through all your evils and knows the frame and constitution of your nature and what is most healthful for you, he holds the cup of affliction to your head with his own gracious hand. Never believe that your tender-hearted Savior who knows the strength of your stomach will mix that cup with one weight of poison. Drink then with the patience of the saints. God never uses our afflictions as poison. They're not meant to destroy us, but to grow and mature us. Our God is a tender-hearted Father who personally and gently holds the cup of each affliction to our mouths, helping us to drink it down. And it may taste bitter at the time, but Rutherford assures us that this is medicine. As a parent who, who's sitting late at night in the bathroom with a sick child holding medicine to the child's mouth, this medicine that tastes like death, so is our Heavenly Father to us in each and every one of our afflictions. 
And what is it that ails us? What does this medicine seek to cure? Again, it's not believing the Father's word. That's what ails us. Not believing you are my beloved child. Our brains rattle with that conditional statement. If I was a child of God, then this would not have happened. If I was a child of God, then this would have happened. But Christ never falters here, even when he's called to do what God would never call us to do. God never gives us poison to drink, but Christ, he refused to let the cup filled with poison pass from him. The cup filled with the poison of our each and every sin, each and every act of distrusting, testing, and rejecting God. Because there's one more instance in Matthew that we find that horrible conditional statement, that horrible phrase, if you are the Son of God. And that's in Matthew 27. When Christ is on the cross, those who are passing by wag their heads at him, and they mockingly say, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And again, this is the God that we expect. Surely God would not let his son die a shameful and painful death on the cross. If Jesus were truly the Son of God, God would not let this happen. But remember the full statement that God the Father speaks to Christ the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. These are the words spoken to Christ, and these words just are our salvation. What God offers us in Christ is the invitation to become a beloved child with whom he is well pleased. But how is it that God can be well pleased with us in our sin? Remember, God's love is a greater love than we actually desire. Even more, it's a love that costs God dearly. It's a love that knows what's best for us, even when we think otherwise. It's a love that does not leave us in our sin. In fact, it's a love that is so great that it cannot even bear sin. It's a love that has gone to the greatest lengths of sacrifice to destroy sin and its effects. What are the consequences of sin? Death and separation from the Father. And on the cross, in his human nature, Christ experiences both of these on our behalf. He takes the full consequence of sin. The one who passed all temptation, who trusted God completely, who never tested God, who never worshipped anyone or anything other than the Heavenly Father, this is the one who drinks the cup of poison, the poison of sin that oozes out from all of our distrust, our testing and rejecting of God. This is how much God the Father loves us. This is how much Christ our brother loves us. This is how great is our salvation. Because you are the Son of God, Jesus, you will not come down from that cross. And what's the effect? Will the words spoken to Christ become ours? You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Christ triumphed over any and all temptation. He drank down the poison for all the ways we give ourselves to these lies. 
Because these are the words that are offered freely to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we place our trust in Christ, if we place our faith in Christ, we receive the loving fatherhood of God and his sweet, sweet pleasure. And so any time that we are tempted to say, if I were really a beloved child of God, then God would have done this or would have done this. Well, look at the cross and remember the great love that God has shown for you. And whenever you're tempted to think, I wish the love of God would just leave my life as it is and not mess with all of these other things, remember the cross and what Christ has done to drink down every bit of the poison of sin. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. These are not cheap words. They don't speak of a bland benevolence that God wishes generally upon humanity. These are costly words that come from a costly love. And this love, if it is truly received, it cannot help but change and transform your life. And this just is salvation. In the words of the theologian J.I. Packer, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If you trust in Christ, you are God's beloved child, The God of the whole universe delights upon you with all joy and favor, all the joy and favor with which he looks upon Christ himself. And so growth in the Christian life just is working these wonderful words more deeply into our heart, into our mind, into our soul. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And to the extent that we know and believe and rest in this truth, to that extent we will triumph over temptation. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have sent us Jesus Christ, that when we receive him, we might hear those wonderful words that have been won by the gospel. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. In Christ, by the work of your Spirit, let us hold to those more and more each day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.